0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio. Exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. Happy Labor Day weekend. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Here at the Mayo Clinic, there are a lot of physicians with long and storied careers, but six decades? That's an amazing feat.
2: (laughs) Wow. On this Labor Day weekend program, we'll meet a physician who has spent some 58 years researching and improving the lives of patients that have been diagnosed with myeloma, cancer of the blood.
1: Also on the program, a partial knee replacement is sometimes an option for patients with severe arthritis of the knee.
2: And how a radiation oncology patient grateful for his care at Mayo Clinic has changed careers to become an employee at Mayo Clinic, hoping to make a difference for patients just like him.
1: All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. You know, Tracy, there are a lot of great doctors at the Mayo Clinic, but there are some who just sort of stand out above the crowd, like Mayo Clinic hematologist Dr. Robert Kyle. Hematologists deal with blood blood problems
2: i think the most important of the cancer doctors that's just me for more than six decades dr kyle has been on the cutting edge of medical research and technology his colleagues would tell you that he has helped to break new ground in the practice of medicine especially for patients with a blood cancer called myeloma and we're privileged to have dr kyle as our guest on mayo clinic radio it's very nice to meet you it's a
1: pleasure for me, Doctor Kyle. Nice to have you. First of all, congratulations on a stellar career at the Mayo Clinic, which is still not over. Uh, fortunately, not. No, for so me.
3: you come in every day still. <laughs> yes, I do. And you've been here what fifty-eight years or so? I've been here sixty-six years since I started as a fellow, actually. Ah. Oh okay. my! And on the staff for nearly sixty. Yes, yeah. that is correct.
1: Well, let's go back to, you were born in North Dakota, right? Correct. Tell us about your upbringing
3: because you weren't always set on a career in medicine, right? Uh, no. I, uh, uh, was always interested in school and in fact, Uh, uh, when I was five years of age I uh, asked my mother if I could uh, go to school and visit for a day and she of course said well okay (laughs) and uh, then I did so and uh, Then I uh, uh, told my mother that uh, I wanted to uh, go to school this next fall. And she said, well, you're only five years old. You shouldn't start until (laughs) you're six. No kindergarten, of course, at that time. And uh, so she talked to the teacher, and the teacher, I guess, uh, didn't uh, object. After all, she had 15, 18 children in a one-room school uh, covering the eight grades, so she just uh, took me on.
2: How did you know you wanted to study medicine?
3: Well, I didn't, of course, at that time. But uh, one day, my mother was talking to a friend of hers, and uh, and uh, the friend said, uh, uh, in response to what I should do, is uh, why doesn't he become a doctor? And I. Didn't think anything about it, but I was interested in the sciences, and when I graduated from high school, I uh, 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 went into pre-med. And then you had a brother who was ill. Became ill? Yes. I had a brother uh, who uh, developed a severe uh, headache one morning, and uh, uh, very soon his speech was uh, slurred, and I knew there was something very wrong with him. So I uh, uh, got our family doctor, and by that time he could scarcely walk and was admitted to the local hospital. The physician, however, had seen uh, meningitis as an intern Mm. and uh, treated him for it. Bacterial meningitis? It was meningococcal
1: meningitis.
3: And they uh, they had antibiotics for it? Uh, uh, He was treated with sulfa, actually. This would be in 1945. Wow. And then from there, medical school where? Uh, at uh, Northwestern,
1: you must have passed another test. And did they have MCATs back then? Did yes, you have they an a- did. Yeah?
3: And what actually happened was, is that I, uh, the University of North Dakota, had a two-year school, but uh, I, uh, the dean, told me that uh, they were in difficult uh, times and that uh, the building was old and that it would probably close if they could not get a state referendum passed. So uh, he said, well, uh, uh, grades are good why don't you apply at a four-year school? And said, well, if you want to be a a professor, uh, apply at Harvard. If you want to do research, go to the University of Pennsylvania. But if you want to be a real doctor, (laughs) apply at Northwestern. And, of course, I wanted to be a real doctor, and you can imagine where the dean had uh, trained
2: Mm -hmm. Northwestern. I think he tipped his cards a little bit there.
1: (laughs) And then um, after medical school, how did you... You ultimately, end up at Mayo Clinic.
3: Well, I decided during medical school that I was more interested in uh, medicine than I was in surgery, and uh, uh, I took my internship. and The main, the major uh, physician or the leading physician had trained here, and so uh, uh, other. People had gone from Northwestern to Mayo Clinic, and so I did the same. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more with Dr. Robert Kyle.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. We are with longtime hematologist Dr. Robert Kyle of the Mayo Clinic. You ultimately specialized in the field of hematology, blood disorders, but with a particular interest in myeloma.
3: How did you get so interested in in myeloma? Well, uh, uh, we had to spend six months in a laboratory at that time as a part of our internal medicine training. And I signed up for hematology because I knew less about it than anything else. And then when I finished the laboratory, I realized that I didn't know anything about the clinical aspects. So I took the hospital service, and on that hospital service, two things happened. First, I saw an electrophoretic pattern. I had never seen one before because it was a new test. And uh, uh, Ned Baird, who was the consultant on the service, uh, said, why don't you look into it? And so I did and uh, reviewed the 6,000 patterns that had been done here and uh, wrote a paper that was published. And then during that same hospitalization, a woman was admitted to the hospital uh, with myeloma for radiation therapy. But as I read the uh, chart, uh, she had had uh, a biopsy, and the biopsy showed amyloid. And I said to myself, what in the world is that? I had never seen, or more appropriately, uh, had never recognized a patient of amyloidosis in four years of medical school, a uh, internship, Two years in the Air Force as a physician and three and a half years as a fellow at the Mayo Clinic. So I had seen a goodly number of patients. And so amyloid is
1: an abnormal protein yes. that uh, uh, collects, the, and you you saw that in a patient that you hadn't seen before. But I hadn't seen that. I mm-hmm. hadn't recognized this before as a more appropriate term. And then this, sorry, back to the serum protein electrophoresis. This this is a study uh, that are are you the one who figured out that there was a particular
3: pattern for that patients um, for, with myeloma have uh yes uh, that was uh, uh that was the so-called spike in the electrophoretic pattern and uh uh I reviewed those patterns and found that the vast majority of them did have multiple myeloma or Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Okay, multiple myeloma. Tell us a little bit about the disease in, in lay terms. I mean, it's a cancer of the blood. It's a cancer of the bone marrow, basically. And these plasma cells uh, become malignant, continue to grow, and produce more protein and damage the uh, bone.
2: And did patients ever survive myeloma? I mean, now it seems like it's getting to be, you know, you can maybe get a few years, up to five years, and some survival stories. But back when you started doing this, was there ever anyone who survived myeloma?
3: Well... Only for a very limited period of time. In my Mm -hmm. textbook in uh, medicine, it uh, said that there were two treatments for multiple myeloma. One was x-ray therapy, radiation therapy, and the other was blood transfusion. There was no chemotherapy. No drugs available. So have you studied multiple drugs for myeloma?
1: And and today they're much better. I mean, the survival, the average survival for a patient with myeloma when I went through medical school and even residency was about three years.
3: What is it now? Uh, It is probably uh, eight or nine years. And for patients with good risk disease, it's even longer than that. And, in fact, about a fourth of patients with multiple myeloma are actually cured or perhaps more appropriately said die of another disease other than their multiple yeah. myeloma.
2: That's amazing.
1: Uh, what would you say is your most significant? When you look back on your career, there, you've made so many contributions. Which isn't back. over yet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what has been your most significant contribution in your mind?
3: Well probably the major thing has been the uh, uh the uh, development of my younger colleagues and uh in the field of dysproteinemias which include myeloma macroglobulinemia and AL amyloidosis as the major ones. The other specific thing is the recognition of a protein abnormality in the blood that uh, uh, I named uh, uh, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, MGUS or MUGUS, and this particular protein is found initially in every one of these dysprotonemia diseases. uh, What's your secret for success? I mean, why have you been
1: so successful, would you say?
3: Well, I think it's uh, mainly a a, a curiosity (laughs) and wondering... how things happen and uh, uh, what is important, and uh, I stumbled onto the monoclonal gammopathy uh, somewhat by accident. There was a patient who was here with multiple myeloma, and in reviewing her history, she had been here almost 20 years before, and at that time she had an increase in globulins, Uh, in her blood, but no one could uh, uh, measure them. And uh, so the physician advised no treatment for Mm. this individual, patted her on the shoulder and said, uh, come back uh, 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 sometime. She came back 13 years later, (laughs) at which time electrophoresis was available, and she had this large spike in her serum. Uh, she still had no symptoms, and then six or seven years later, she developed back pain and the full-blown picture of a very uh, active, progressive multiple myeloma, which led to her demise uh, seven or eight months later. And so that seemed kind of strange, and so I started looking for these Proteins in the blood and they were there and uh, began to uh, collect them and over the next uh, ten years uh, found a goodly number uh, published. 241 of them in 1978 and named the condition monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, which uh, is more than a mouthful.
2: Are you still seeing patients? Are you still doing research? What are you still doing each day?
3: I uh, come in each morning, about 7.30 in the morning, and uh, uh, look at my emails, and uh, there are a lot of things that happen throughout the day, and I am busy until uh, uh, 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, and uh, I uh, still come in on Saturday mornings. Because when I came to the clinic, the clinic was open Saturday. on Saturday mornings. Mm-hmm. And Saturday mornings, one saw patients until 12, 1 o'clock, or sometimes a little bit later. So that habit, I guess, has uh, stuck.
2: How uh, is it? So you're into your 90s now? Is yes. That, okay, how old are you?
3: I am 91.
2: Okay. How have you prevented physician burnout?
3: Well, uh, just coming to work every day. But <laughs> to be a little more uh, specific, uh, uh, my wife and I, uh, Charlene, have done a lot of travel over the years. And uh, our son, John, is also very interested in travel, plans trips, and uh, we have uh, driven uh, all over the world, so to speak. Uh, uh, many trips uh, throughout uh, Europe, Australia, South Africa, and uh, so forth. And then, in addition to this, uh, I uh, uh, have a hobby, uh, stamp
2: collecting. Hmm. It's that, a
3: philatelist.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, what... what? <laughs> Gesundheit. <laughs> What, uh, what do you, what do you suggest that some of these younger physicians do? I mean, what is it that brings you joy that you try to impart to them?
3: Well, one of the things I emphasize to them is that when they go to a meeting, ask to uh, speak someplace or something like that, to always sample something in the city, uh, go to a museum, uh, see something of historical interest, and I've always had an interest in both history and geography, and uh, to do something uh, And I always tell them that an airplane is an airplane, a hotel is a hotel, an auditorium is an auditorium, but you need to get out and do something, squeeze in a few hours on each trip. Now, that's easier nowadays for me than it is uh, for the very, very busy uh, uh, physician who has to get back to his or her patients. So it's very important to have other interests, whether it's travel
1: or stamp collecting, uh, and that can help prevent physician burnout. It's it's interesting that it's such a, a common phenomenon now and that everybody talks about it.
3: Physician burnout. Yes. I never felt it. I didn't or I haven't either. <laughs> and uh and uh it's uh I don't know. Uh, uh, hard to a lot is written it? about it and I suppose that uh, uh that uh physicians nowadays kind of keep thinking about it and so forth. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we just never never mentioned it. Well again, Congratulations on a great career and an incredible
1: uh, 60-plus year career at the Mayo Clinic, and it's not over. Dr. Kyle is considered a multiple myeloma pioneer. That's what his his colleagues would uh, call him. He's had He has done groundbreaking work that has changed the practice of hematology, blood disorders. And he's improved the lives and the longevity of virtually thousands of patients. And he says whenever you go on a trip or a meeting, make <laughs> sure you sample something in the city. I like it. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kyle. Appreciate having you here.
3: It's been my privilege, and thank you very much.
1: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll find out when a partial knee replacement might be an option for severe arthritis of the knee.
2: And later on the program, how one Mayo Clinic patient was inspired to become a Mayo Clinic employee. Coming up, a Health Minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi,
0: I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. What is the difference between occasionally worrying about your health and worrying too much? What if you can't stop thinking you're not as healthy as your doctor says? Well, Mayo Clinic doctors say a little worry over your health is normal. But for some people, fear and concern over symptoms can get out of control. These people can become convinced that they have a certain illness, even when test results are normal. These are common features of somatic symptom disorder that's thought to affect roughly 5% of the population. People with somatic symptom disorder develop an excessive preoccupation with physical symptoms, including pain or fatigue, that results in significant emotional distress or disruptions to daily living. Stress responses to these uncomfortable symptoms, such as dizziness, heart palpitations, nausea, chest pain, or shortness of breath, may further amplify worries. These symptoms may or may not be attributed to a diagnosed medical condition. Now the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors may manifest in several ways including constant worrying about illness, interpreting normal sensations as threatening or harmful and fearing that symptoms are serious or life-threatening despite exams or testing that suggest otherwise. It's also common for people with somatic symptom disorder to feel that medical evaluations or treatments haven't been adequate. Repeatedly checking the body for abnormalities, researching symptoms online and frequent healthcare visits or testing that doesn't relieve concerns or makes them worse are also signs of the disorder. Now if you're experiencing unusual symptoms, it's important to be evaluated by a healthcare care provider to rule out any medical problems. Your healthcare care provider can perform a comprehensive examination that focuses on your specific concerns. However, keep in mind that evaluations may need to be limited as repeated or extensive testing may worsen your level of distress. Well, the main goal of managing these disorders is to improve your ability to cope with your symptoms, tolerate uncertainty, and reduce health anxiety. The most effective treatment is psychotherapy, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy. Talk to your health care provider for more information. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. During knee replacement surgery, damaged bone and cartilage is resurfaced and it's done with metal and plastic components. In a procedure called unicompartmental or partial knee replacement, only a portion of the knee is resurfaced. It sounds like it would be tricky. Well... If you're an orthopedic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic, it's a piece of cake.
2: (laughs) Okay. The operation is an alternative to total knee replacement for patients whose disease is limited to just one area of the knee. And here to talk about the indications for the procedure and the recovery is the chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Dr. Mark Pagnano. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Pagnano, nice to see you. Thanks for coming. So let's talk about in general about knee replacement surgery.
4: Um, Why is it done? Um, What are the most common indications? Sure. Uh, Knee replacement is typically done for patients who have advanced arthritis of the knee joint, and that can either be arthritis from wear and tear, just from years of use, or from other causes like inflammatory arthritis. And when you do that, most of the
1: time, the entire joint is involved or the majority of the joint, so you replace, resurface everything. But if only a portion of the joint is involved, you can do
4: a lesser surgery and replace only the damaged portion. That's right. For a selected subgroup of patients, they only wear out one of the three major parts of the knee joint, and if they have disabling pain and just one part of the knee joint that's worn out, then a partial knee replacement is actually a very reasonable option for them.
2: How can you know until you get in there that a partial surgery would work? Is there an x-ray? Does x-ray show it, or how do you see?
4: Yeah, so the good news is with some specific x-rays, you can largely determine whether a patient is in fact a candidate for a partial knee replacement. So it does take the guesswork out of it. It would be exceptionally uncommon, in my experience, to go into the knee and be surprised at the findings. So a partial knee is determined before the time of the operation. You talked about uh, three compartments to the knee. What are those? Yeah, so the best way to think about it is the inside or medial compartment the outside of the knee or lateral compartment, and then the kneecap or patellofemoral joint. So three parts. And that the patellofemoral
1: joint, the joint between the kneecap and the
4: underlying thigh bone. That's correct.
2: Bone. Out of those three compartments, which one is usually
4: where you end up for a, when you just do
2: a minimally invasive one?
4: So the most common is a medial compartment partial knee. So the vast majority of people that have degenerative arthritis of their knee Uh, wear out the inside part first, and then the other parts kind of follow. It is possible in certain circumstances to wear out the outside part or the patella selectively, but that's much less common. If you wear out just the inside uh, part of the knee joint, you
1: might be bow-legged. That's correct. Now, this is almost deja vu, because years ago, a decade or two ago, when I was still doing joint replacements, we did some uni compartmental knee replacements, partial knee replacements, and it seems like they didn't work
4: out so well. So what's different today? How did they come back into vogue? Yeah, so I think two major factors. One is that years ago, partial knees were used for reasons that were not appropriate. So people tried to expand the use of them. And the second was that a partial knee is technically a harder operation to do for the surgeon, and there have been advancements with technology and technique that make it more reliable, more reproducible, and more durable. Instrumentation is much better, for sure. We, We did a lot of it freehand. Yeah, and today the the big thing in partial knee replacement is either computer navigation or robotics actually to help with that. So the precision of the surgery has been markedly improved and that seems to have an effect uh, for the outcome. Let's
2: talk pros and cons. What are the advantages and disadvantages of doing a partial knee?
4: Certainly, so what I typically think about is that a partial knee is a smaller operation. It typically results in a quicker recovery and then typically also has a little bit better function than a total knee replacement for patients. And and that's partly because you're able to preserve the patient's own ligaments, which is a big deal. That's right. So in every total knee replacement, we have to remove one or perhaps two of the major ligaments to provide stability to the knee. And In a partial knee, we get to keep all of those ligaments. So the way the knee bends and straightens after surgery is closer to normal with a partial knee.
2: You said it's a little more difficult surgery to do. Uh, Are there any disadvantages?
4: So the biggest disadvantage would be that it is possible at a later date to wear out one of the other parts of your knee Mm -hmm. and perhaps require conversion of the partial knee to a total knee. But it's also important to recognize that the intention with a partial knee replacement is to have that last as long as possible, So for most patients, a partial knee replacement will, in fact, last them the rest of their life. Uh, But it is possible that you might require another surgery. So
1: tell us about the surgery itself. Um, How do you do it? Is the patient uh, asleep, and do you do it under a tourniquet?
4: Yeah, so today uh, there have been some major advancements from a patient perspective in knee replacement surgery. And one of those is advancements in uh, all we do uh, around the time of surgery. So today, most patients with a partial knee will have that done as an outpatient surgery so they They can come in and go home the same day. Mm -hmm. Most will have it done under spinal anesthesia so they can be uh, breathing throughout the whole surgery, Uh, and most will be able to bear weight, start walking immediately after the operation. Really? So no crutches or, or cane afterwards? Most patients will start with uh, some kind of walking aid, uh, either a, a walker or, or a crutches to start with, but can quickly transition. They can, however, put weight on it uh, immediately after surgery. Are these components cemented or no? They are cemented into place, so cement for knee replacement continues to have an outstanding track record, uh, and that's one of the advantages. Because the parts are bonded to the bone securely at the time of surgery, then we're very comfortable with letting patients bear weight immediately following the operation.
2: I just want to clarify something. So you said if you don't have the surgery, you know, maybe the second joint then starts to degrade or suffer, and then possibly the third. So that's the benefit of doing just the first surgery on the inside part of the knee. So if you do that surgery, if you do this partial knee then why isn't it that pretty soon you have to do a partial knee on the outside? I mean, it would seem like if it's going to continue to degenerate, that then the other part would need to be partially done as well.
4: Yeah, so for the majority of patients, once we realign the knee and restore stability with the partial knee replacement, then the knee continues to function well. And so the chance of wearing out those other parts of the knee go down over time.
2: See, the non-orthopedic person had okay. to clarify you, that. he got
4: it. Well, <laughs> and he did a great job of
1: clarifying that. So uh, I know we we don't necessarily like to talk about uh, this part of uh, our profession and the surgery that we do, but there are always
4: complications. And what are those when it comes to partial knee replacement? So with partial knee replacement, the typical complications would be similar to the ones we would see with total knee replacement. So uh, those would include infection, bleeding, nerve trouble, blood clots. Now the chance of running into any one of those complications is relatively low, but obviously for any one patient, uh, that's a big deal. But we're able to take specific precautions to really minimize the risk of that. And one of the advantages of partial knee is that for each of those complications, the risk is about half of what it is with a total knee replacement. Wow. Half a knee instead of whole knee. Holy moly. All right, Dr. Mark Pagnano, Chairman of the
1: Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much.
2: When we come back, we'll hear how a grateful patient is now paying it forward.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Jay Masters came to the Mayo Clinic first as a
2: patient. After finishing treatment, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, Jay decided that he wanted to work at the institution that had cared for him, the Mayo Clinic, and that's exactly what happened. And here to tell us his story is Mr. Jay Masters. Welcome to the program. It's nice to meet
5: you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
1: Jay, thanks for coming. So tell us, uh, I think it was November 2017, right, when you first came to the Mayo Clinic as a patient, and, and why did you come? Well, I had
5: been um, to see an ear, nose, and throat specialist at another healthcare facility. And he did some examinations and said, I think there's probably a a better than 50% chance that you have cancer. And I asked him what the procedure would be. And he said, well, we would perform surgery to remove the tumor that's in your throat. And I asked him at that time, I said, okay, who would do this surgery? And he said, well, I would. And I said, okay, how many of these do you do a year? (laughs) And he paused, and he said, well, probably six to eight, depending on the year. And I thought for a moment, and I said, okay. I said, doctor, I, I don't want to be insulting, but if I have cancer in my throat, I would rather have someone remove it who does 80 or 90 a year
1: very astute.
5: and uh, Thank you, yes. <laughs> and he said, you know, you, you haven't insulted me in the least. He said, I did my training at the Mayo Clinic, and I know exactly who I'm going to send you to. For what you have, the gentleman that I'm going to refer you to is the absolute best surgeon in the world. And I said, sign me up. <laughs> and so um, we then made the appointments, and I, uh, just a couple of days before Thanksgiving of that year, came in to see Dr. Eric Moore. What what were your symptoms that had you go see the ENT in the first place? Well, much earlier in the year I had noticed a discomfort in my throat and a slight change in my voice, but that didn't come until later. I saw a different ENT at another facility and he said, "Oh, it's just a polyp. Nothing to worry about. We can remove that if it becomes a nuisance to you." Well, it Progressed for several months, but then uh, what actually precipitated my coming in to see my my doctor was I I started having some swelling at the base of my throat. Mm. I showed my wife. She said, "This is not normal." So you uh,
2: you were referred to Doctor Moore, and mm-hmm. how did the process of your surgery and your
5: treatment go? The one thing I would start with was that we came in a couple of days before Thanksgiving. One physician. Thought there was probably a better than 50 percent chance that I had cancer, so I had not received a, a full diagnosis at that point. We came to see Dr. Moore, and the first thing he said to me is, "I want you to know that we cure stage Four cancer here all the time." And I thought, "Oh, well, that's great. If they can cure stage four, whatever I've got here should be a piece of cake for them, you know. <laughs> and then he looked me in the eye and very calmly said, "What you have is stage Four cancer." My heart immediately dropped. My wife grabbed my hand immediately, and I remember that distinctly. She grabbed my hand, and I kind of went numb for just a few seconds. I mm-hmm. thought, you know, you know, why me? Is This This can't be possible, et etc. et cetera, all the things that run through your mind.
1: Understandable. Mm-hmm.
5: And then Dr. Moore continued to speak, and, but for a brief time, I felt like I was in a Charlie Brown cartoon. I wasn't really hearing what he was saying. All I heard was wah, 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 mm-hmm. wah. And, but I quickly rejoined the conversation, and he said, this is very treatable. Um, I think we can get it all. And then we can look at what, what happens next. Radiation, perhaps chemo, and we'll, we'll go from there.
1: Where had it spread?
5: It had spread to lymph nodes in my neck. So in addition to removing a tumor that was about the size of the end of my thumb, they also removed 30 lymph nodes from my throat on the left-hand side. And five of them were affected with cancer. So surgery first? Yes, in my case, uh, surgery was first uh, to remove the tumor, and after about four to six weeks, I don't remember the exact dates, I came back in and started uh, a six-week course of radiation, which was five days a week Fun times. Uh, uh, for six weeks, so 30 courses, and then at the same time, I was scheduled for uh, chemotherapies and i started my regimen
2: how did that radiation go for you i said fun times meaning Mm, that's a that's a lot of radiation and it's not a fun time right and
5: and i was warned about that by my care team they said Mm -hmm. you know this is going to get progressively more difficult And they were right. I went in and I went through my first radiation treatment. Oh, this is a piece of cake. I'm going to slide right through this. Not remembering that they had said it's going to get progressively worse. What I didn't understand at the time was that radiation builds up in your body. And so my worst days were actually after the radiation had had been completed.
2: And so you uh, decided you wanted to work for Mayo Clinic?
5: And what job did you apply for? That is uh, called a desk operations specialist, or a DOS, where I room patients, I check patients in when they come to the desk.
1: And then what happened? You were asked to do something else.
5: Well, yes. Um, I Actually, it was, it was quite ironic. I ended up coming back to the department where I spent most of my time as a patient. I was hired in radiation oncology. Like I said, I don't know if it was divine intervention or uh, just the luck of the draw. I I tend to think it was the former. And Uh, what do you do now? Well, um, I had been there for a couple of months or so, and our social worker was starting to come to me and say, Jay, I've got this particular patient. They're struggling with their diagnosis. Would you mind talking with them? So I met with probably two or three patients that she had set me up with, and my, my supervisor said, Jay, I've seen you with the patients. She said, "I think you have more to offer them than we are currently the way we are currently utilizing you. Would you consider begin a pilot program where you would work with these patients?" And after thinking about it a microsecond, I right. said, "Yes, absolutely. I would be. I would love to do that." And what's the patient response? It was quite overwhelming. I, I mean, I anticipated it would be good having been a patient, having lived those same fears and and being frightened and not knowing what was to come, I I, I truly understood what they were saying. I mean, it's, it's easy to say, oh, gee, I know what you're going through. But until you've walked a mile in their shoes, you really don't. And so, so many of them, after they heard parts of my story, they immediately were gravitating to me. Sure.
2: That's a lot of job satisfaction for you, I would
5: imagine. It was extremely satisfying and gratifying to know that I was helping them to navigate not just their cancer. Or radiation. In some cases, I was helping them navigate Mayo Clinic and all the buildings and where to go for their next appointments. Many of our patients come from well, I come from all over the world, mm-hmm. and so many, many were trying to navigate Rochester and and the surrounding communities. And I had multiple types of questions that would come up, but the one thing that I noticed was I was catching things in the in the waiting room earlier when a patient would come in. A lot of times, I would see them every day. I'd say, "How are you doing today?" You know, I'm doing okay, but, you know, I had one lady that said, you know, I, I had um, surgery on my breast to remove a tumor, and I'm not sure it's healing properly. I immediately contacted her nurse and said, XYZ patient is concerned that her wound is not healing properly. She is not scheduled to see you for three more days. Would you like to see her today? And she said, Absolutely. So the nurses actually told me, you're catching things in the lobby two and three days earlier than we would see these patients, and we're helping these patients to address these issues much more quickly. They're healing faster, and they're healing better.
2: And had you not gone through what you went through, it would not have been able to come full circle like this.
5: Exactly. Is this the best job you've ever had? In many respects, it is. It is very rewarding.
1: Mr. J. Masters, you know, there are not too many people who come to the Mayo Clinic as patients and actually end up working here. Not just working here, but working in the same department where they were treated. Jay Masters not only now works at the Mayo Clinic, he's making a, a positive impact on patients every day, helping others through the challenges of cancer treatment because he's been there. Thanks for sharing your story, Jay. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this Station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.